Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Suzanne Haywood, Lady Haywood, about her book, What Does Jeremy Think? The title, of course, refers to her late husband, Jeremy Haywood, Lord Haywood, a pivotal figure in the civil service and one of the most influential cabinet secretaries of recent times. He died of lung cancer in 2018 at the age of 56. The subtitle, Jeremy Haywood and the Making of Modern Britain, captures the ambition of this book to give an account of how one person helped bring Britain into the 21st century. Suzanne Haywood published this book earlier this year, successfully navigating the obstacles that sometimes prevent accounts from the civil servant's point of view. And it is, I must say, a fascinating portrait of life at the heart of government under four prime ministers. It's also a portrait of their courtship and family life as two very highly successful working parents. Suzanne, who has a PhD in science from Oxford University, was a senior partner at McKinsey and is now, among other things, a managing director of Exor, a company partly owned by the Agnelli family and chair of CNH Industrial, one of the companies it backs. Suzanne, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. I wonder if you could tell us just at the start of how this book came about, when you planned it and how you worked with Jeremy on it. Well, I, Jeremy and I had... For many years, actually, I had said that I wanted to write his biography at some point in the future. Uh, and it was something that we kind of discussed off and on, you know, maybe, maybe other people do as well. And then sadly, um, as is, you know, as I kind of make clear in the book, uh, in 2017, um, he was diagnosed with, with terminal lung cancer. Um, and I knew at that point that if I didn't uh, start to write this book, then I would never be able to do it with his help. I'd never be able to capture his memories uh, and so we started writing later on that year. Um, and I had about a year of being able to interview him and talk to him about it and get his perspective on things. And then I had about another year and a half after that uh, to put it all together and, and kind of put it into a kind of publishable form. Um, and I wanted to do it for a couple of reasons, as did he. I mean, one is to try and explain to people what the civil service is and how it operates. Um, and secondly, he saw it partly as a bit of a gift back to the civil service uh, because he wasn't going to be there to pass on his memories. Um, it did mean that we did it in a different sort of way. I mean, we, the initial idea, if you like, to the extent that we had uh, kind of planned it, was to do what many of his, you know, his predecessors have done and, you know, for him to have a period after office for him to kind of commentate and, you know, get involved in the issues of the day. Um, and then after a kind of a period of time, we would write the kind of biography. But but sadly, kind of fate took that kind of option out of our hands and I was either going to write it then or it wasn't going to get written. And so you hadn't done very much at all by the time his diagnosis came. You'd, talk, you'd talked about it, you planned it, you had the conception, but you actually didn't have a lot of detailed work at that point? I hadn't done anything at all. I mean, it, it had been a kind of light dinner, dinner time conversation, but I, I'd literally done nothing at all apart from occasionally uh, raise it as a possibility. Uh, but no, no, no work whatsoever until actually there was some time after his diagnosis, because as you can imagine, you know, the first few months after his diagnosis, that was the only thing that really we focused on uh, alongside just trying to kind of continue day to day life. So it was actually several months later that we started work about the kind of September uh, he was diagnosed, I think, kind of back in the June or, June or so of that year. Uh, uh, no, that is an, an astonishing uh, task. Um, 
was there much intervention by the cabinet office and others in in government? Um, there are books by civil servants, but many of those run a, a kind of obstacle course in order to see the light of day. Well, what I said to the cabinet office was that I was very keen to make sure that I didn't have anything in the book that they thought was particularly problematic, particularly anything from a kind of national security point of view or anything like that. Um, now, as a private citizen, I'm not uh, subject to any of the kind of cabinet office rules, but I did want to make sure that they had a kind of full opportunity to comment on it. So I actually gave them the book 18 months before it was published, uh, and they gave me a lot of comments back, the vast majority of which um, I did take on board. Um, and actually, a number of them were, were very, very helpful. Um, uh, I think like many people who have been through that process, it was a painful process um, at times. Um, but uh, as I say, quite a lot of the input that they gave me was useful. Uh, as, as you kind of mentioned, a lot of civil servants do write books um, and, um, you know, kind of others write books, you're kind of ex-army officers and um, diplomats and so on. And I actually think it's important, kind of done in the right sort of way, uh, it's important to throw a light on how these institutions work if we expect uh, people to uh, understand uh, and, and kind of respect and, and kind of take advice from the government. So let's throw a light right back at the beginning of the book on the um, treasury of Norman Lamont, which is where you met Jeremy. And you were both working on something uh, called the Fundamental Expenditure Review, which he said to one of my colleagues very, very lightheartedly, um, might have been the most important job he did. What, what was that? Well, it came actually after Black Wednesday. So we had Black Wednesday, uh, as people may, may remember, when, when the pound fell out of the ERM in 1992, and it was after that the Treasury just... That happens, I do remember, yes. <laughs> uh, some of your listeners may remember. Um, so, so the Treasury decided after that it was time to take a good, hard look at itself, kind of how it operated, how it was structured, what its objectives were, whether it had the right sort of skills, how it operated uh, within Whitehall, and Jeremy was appointed to lead that review. Uh, and he had a very small team that supported him. Uh, there was a, you know, one other kind of treasury manager, uh, a secretary, uh, and myself, and, and that was the team. And we basically went around the treasury, uh, interviewed pretty much every single team in the treasury, and came up with a, a new structure. You know, we took layers out of the organization. We came up with a set of new objectives for the organization, proposals for how the treasury could work better within Whitehall and so on. I think for Jeremy, the reason why he saw it as such a, an, an important uh, period was it was the first time he'd really uh, taken a, kind of a, a big leadership role uh, where he was, and one in which he was really thinking about how to make an institution work better. And of course, a lot of the lessons that he learned there became very, very important much later on in his career when he became uh, head of the civil service. Well, I was going to ask you that, what lessons he took from that uh, into, into other jobs. And I, um, I'd love it if you could just dwell on that for a second. Well, I think he took a lot of lessons from it, actually. I think he he learned the importance of taking layers out of organization and uh, because and the value, really, of people who are doing the policy, talking directly to ministers wherever you can. Uh, he learned the importance of uh, bringing skills um, into departments and, and kind of uh, preserving skills within departments. Uh, he was very, very passionate about things like knowledge management, kind of making sure that uh, the civil service preserves uh, its knowledge. So lots and lots of things he learned through that process. Um, he he reapplied kind of later on and, and built on, really. I mean, he became much more sophisticated, I think, in how he did some of those things. But uh, But definitely a lot of those early learnings were from the fundamental expenditure review. 
And how important was his background as an economist to the way he approached things afterwards? Well, it's interesting because when Jeremy came into the civil service as an economist, the economist was a, a separate stream of civil servants from the rest of the uh, civil service and a, a somewhat second tier, actually, uh, at the time. And it was only later that they all became kind of integrated into the main civil service. So it was very unusual when he first became appointed as Norman Lamont's private secretary when Norman Lamont was financial secretary. It was very unusual for an economist to be appointed, appointed to that role. But actually, I think Jeremy found that his economics background, although he, you know, from that point onwards really wasn't a, a kind of a full-time practicing economist, he was a generalist, he found that economics background to be invaluable. I mean, as I, I kind of describe as the story goes on, I mean, he was involved in repeated budgets, uh, obviously through the kind of financial crisis, efforts to try and re-stimulate the economy. And at all these moments, the fact that he had that economic training, that economic background, uh, was very, very valuable as he engaged in all of those different policy debates. I was trying to think as you were talking of when economists, as you say, stop being second-class citizens um, or second-class, um, second-tier, if you like, separate stream within the civil service and really became championed for that kind of knowledge. But in the, the years you're describing in these books are, are very much uh, economic times to um, adapt the FT slogan. And... Um, I can absolutely imagine during that uh, that those skills came to the forefront. You, you yourself moved into the private sector at that point. You'd left the Treasury where you spent, I think, five years and, and gone into the private sector. Did the two of you discuss the difference between public and private a lot? Well, absolutely. And I think for us, I mean, we might come on later to, to the challenges of, of running two careers side by side. But I think for us, you know, the fact that we were living in very different worlds, uh, but we we both felt that we could learn a lot from each other. Uh, Jeremy was incredibly good at getting ideas from anywhere he could find ideas from uh, because he was he was absolutely passionate about uh, reforming the civil service, improving the civil service, you know, and, and he was by his kind of natural inclination was to be an innovator, a challenger of the system. And so he looked for uh, inspiration from everywhere, you know. So when I was at McKinsey, which is where I went when I left the Treasury, you know, he stole all sorts of ideas, kind of through me from McKinsey. Uh, so apologies to McKinsey for that. But uh, what, what kind of thing? Well, I mean, some simple examples. I mean, McKinsey has a wonderful publication called the Civil Service, uh, the McKinsey Quarterly, which was the the kind of best. Uh, research and kind of innovation ideas from across the globe in McKinsey. And of course, Jeremy stole that uh, and called it Civil Service Quarterly, which still exists. And it's basically exactly the same idea. Um, you know, but there were other things, you know, McKinsey actually was very good at getting people alongside all the client projects that people did. It was very good at having kind of working teams that would work on internal issues that you would do part time alongside doing that client work. And that was a way of getting a large number of people engaged in things like, you know, I remember that we had a, a kind of green initiative to try and reduce the carbon output of the office really quite early on, actually. Uh, and that was something that about 50 people from across the office did alongside doing other things. And that concept of having the, that kind of parallel team working, I remember Jeremy implemented across number 10 when he became uh, Tony Blair's principal private secretary. He set up a whole series of working teams using exactly the same model uh, within number 10. So he was always trying to look for ideas that he could pull into the civil service. I wanted actually at that point to turn to the Tony Blair years 
Um, not so much Iraq. Tony Blair had a whole squad of people advising him on that and, and, and foreign affairs, and um, Jeremy was not that much uh, centrally involved in it. But um, I was thinking about um, one of the things that came to characterize the, the Blair years, uh, the, the aim of bringing private sector management techniques um, to bear on public services uh, and on government, you know, the very heart of government itself. Um, I would imagine that that was something very central to what Jeremy was trying to do. So Jeremy was very passionate about reforming public services, making public services work better. Uh, He was much more agnostic on the method to do that, uh, particularly on things which are much more political decisions, so how much kind of private sector involvement you should have in it. What he was very passionate about, and I do describe this in the book, uh, was you know th- one of the things that he actually introduced with with Tony Blair, or an idea that he kind of put into the mix, was the idea of choice. So by giving people choice uh, between public services and accompanying that, of course, with enough data for them to make real choices. Uh, so it's one thing to be able to say to somebody, you can choose which hospital to go to for your operation. But you now need to have enough information about those hospitals and their outcomes and the services they provide to be able to make that decision. But by doing that, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of stealing an idea from the private sector of a degree of competition uh, within the public sector. And that raises it, things up because, you know, the better hospitals will start to get more patients wanted to come towards them. You know, that will give them more funding and so on. So Jeremy was a huge believer in public sector reform. He was always looking for mechanisms to do it. I think he was more neutral on things like the amount of uh, private sector involvement, which obviously is much more about, as I say, a kind of political decision. Yes, and there were those who were not agnostic, and and it remains controversial, um, though did get widely adopted. What about the importance of relations um, with the Chancellor? And the Blair and Gordon Brown years gave us um, quite a lot to think about on that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's, it was very interesting writing the book and reflecting on the different relationships that took place between different prime ministers and different chancellors. And quite often that relationship is a very difficult uh, relationship. And that can be counterproductive. And I think there kind of certainly were periods during the, the Blair-Brown uh, era where, where it was very, very difficult uh, because the relationship was became quite quite poor, as is well known. Uh, but actually, the fact that there is a tension between number 10 and number 11, I think also has its benefits. I mean, that is the main place in government where the prime minister receives real challenge. And again, there is a bit of an analogy with the uh, with the private sector. I mean, the, the kind of CEO and the CFO are the two most powerful people in most uh, most organisations. And you do want a bit of tension between those two. You know, one holds the purse strings, one leads the overall organisation. Um, but when that uh, when that tension arose between Blair and Brown, it was very interesting because the way in which it was solved, you know, was Jeremy having these sessions, which I describe in the book, uh, with Ed Balls, uh, Gordon Brown's lead advisor, and they would meet in all of all places in Churchill's cafe, a rather kind of grotty cafe, I have to say, on Whitehall, which was a bit. It doesn't. It doesn't live up to its name. <laughs> no, it really doesn't. It was kind of formica tables and really quite terrible coffee. Uh, but it was halfway between the Treasury and Number Ten, and there, in the back of Churchill's coffee uh, cafe, you know, kind of surrounded by tourists. They were busy trying to kind of hammer something out. And for me, that illustrates something about Jeremy, which is he was really focused on getting things done, you know, getting 
stuff done that the government wanted to get achieved. And he was willing to change processes, to do things in a different way, to be innovative, to sit in the back of Churchill's cafe if that was the way in which it had to happen in order to get things done. Um, and that actually became something that was repeated all the way through his career. I mean, luckily, you know, Churchill's cafe is no longer with us and it was done in other ways. But that 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 mindset of there will be a way to do it and I'm not going to be stuck you know, always doing it in the precise way in which it's been done before if I have to kind of change that process. As you said, Ed Balls makes quite a few appearances in this book. And I was um, particularly struck by um, your description of, of Jeremy's role in Gordon Brown's uh, premiership. Um, um, on the one hand, uh, Gordon Brown, absolutely central in the uh, financial crisis and some would argue his finest hour, uh, on the other hand, struggling in some ways to make decisions. How do you think Jeremy saw his role? And how, how does a senior official help a prime minister who may be struggling on on, on getting through the daily decisions? Well, again, it's interesting because when Jeremy, you know, Jeremy came back into government, uh, he'd been in the private sector for a short period. He came back into government. He was asked back in by Gordon Brown. Uh, and he went back into the cabinet office. And then Gordon asked him to come into number 10 because Gordon was struggling. Gordon Brown was struggling to uh, get the number 10 to, machine to support him uh, in the way in which he needed to be uh, supported. And when Jeremy went in, and I, I described this in the book, it, it was it was pretty messy in there. You know, there were kind of papers stacked up everywhere that were, you know, decisions weren't being made, the diary, things weren't going in the diary. I mean, the, just the basic mechanism wasn't really operating. But Jeremy's perspective was interesting when he described this to me because his view was this is not about trying to force Gordon Brown to operate the way in which we would like a prime minister to operate. This is about, number 10, accommodating or kind of changing the way in which it operates to get the best out of the prime minister. And that's what he did. And some of the ways in which he had to do that were somewhat unconventional. So, you know, Gordon Brown was very focused on writing, you know, often very brilliant speeches. And in doing those speeches, he took a lot of decisions. And that was a very effective decision making process. But he didn't like making decisions in the more conventional way of, you know, you read through a submission and you kind of put a tick or cross at the bottom. So you so but Jeremy's view was you accommodate, you you change the way in which you do it. So long as these things are you know, done in a, a kind of structured way, the way in which that, that happens, you can actually be much more fluid. And so that's what he did when he kind of came into number 10 with Gordon Brown. And so when the coalition came in, and again, these are, these are fascinating um, sections in your book. Um, can you tell us about how that worked? Uh, because it might well not have worked. It might have worked very badly indeed. Well, it's interesting because I think the coalition certainly as I saw it, uh, doing what, because of course I didn't just talk to Jeremy to write the book, I talked to about 200 other people. So I, I got lots and lots of eyewitness accounts of, of all this. So I should say, you know, the book is very much my perspective from all of that. Uh, but, I, but I certainly kind of, as I was writing it, felt that the coalition was, a, was definitely a game of two halves, shall we say. The first half, and I remember Jeremy saying this to me actually, uh, it felt very efficient and very effective. And the, the kind of forcing mechanism of having two different parties in government, that forced a lot of formality into the centre of government, which was actually by and large very helpful. You know, um, you know, many more meetings had to take place. You know, decisions had to, you know, much more stuff had to be written. Very interesting out. point. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but the second half of the coalition, uh, it became incredibly difficult because as they were running up to the next election, uh, the parties started to separate. They needed to kind of find space between uh, themselves. And of course, by that point, there were a lot of scars, you know, a lot of things had happened or not happened that the parties wanted. Things became incredibly fractious. And Jeremy, a little bit like in the kind of mirror of what had happened during the kind of Blair Brown period, found himself, you know, a big part of his role was getting decisions, uh, you know, made between the two sides of the coalition when, you know, relationships were really becoming very poor. I'm going to come back to some questions about David Cameron in a moment, but I wonder if we can then just move on to Theresa May. So after the, um, the Brexit vote and how he saw the extraordinary job that had um, suddenly landed on government of preparing for Brexit and attempting to do a deal. And when I've talked to people about Jeremy Hayward, um, this is one of the questions they raise about whether he was almost too good. He had such proficiency at brokering um, deals between people who did not think there was a a deal that was going to be there, that um, it is possible uh, some suggest that, it, that that approach let him down when it came to the Brexit deal, that he perhaps um, didn't understand how firmly the EU uh, and Ireland uh, were going to have their, going to hold to their red lines, uh, nor indeed the, um, the, the, the elements of the Conservative Party, and perhaps was pursuing a deal that simply wasn't there. What, how, how does that seem to you in retrospect? Well, I think kind of hindsight is a, is a kind of wonderful thing. Um, I think what Jeremy would say is at the point at which they tried to find, they started, you know, trying to find a kind of deal which would satisfy all sides. It wasn't at all clear how it was going to play out. It wasn't at all clear, you know, how Parliament was going to evolve its perspective. They just had the vote. Um, it wasn't clear, therefore, where the Prime Minister was going to need to draw her red lines or feel that she needed to draw her red lines. And it certainly wasn't clear you know, where Europe was going to position itself uh, on all of this. Um, You know, Jeremy's mindset at the kind of start of that period, uh, and I've got a little kind of uh, phrase in the book because I thought it kind of captured it very well. You know, he, I think he was talking to Ollie Robbins and Ollie said, you know, how are we going to find a kind of way through this? And Jeremy said, you know, sometimes doing this job feels like we're playing 16-dimensional chess and we don't even know what the kind of we don't really know what the end outcome is going to be. We can't even see ten moves ahead, but we can see the next couple of stages, and we can kind of work towards those. And of course, the next first few stages were kind of laying out the possible options and so on. Uh, Jeremy did realise, sadly, before he kind of passed away, it became increasingly clear that there wasn't going to be, to him, it became increasingly clear that there wasn't going to be a solution that would simultaneously you know, respect the vote, uh, respect what kind of Europe wanted and satisfy Parliament. Uh, And um, it was on one of the last, I think it was the last occasion when we left the hospital, actually, and we we went and we had lunch somewhere before he had to go back. And he said, you know, we, it feels like, you know, there's a, uh, we've we've reached the end of what, of this democratic process in a way, because we now have our elected government, uh, our elected MPs wanting one thing, we have a, have a vote uh, wanting another thing. And of course, we have Europe on the other side. And it feels like the only answer is probably going to be a kind of change of government or an election, which of course is what eventually happened. But he, you know, he kept working as long as he could to try and find a solution. I think, as I say, you know, towards the end, he realised that it looked impossible to find something that was going to satisfy uh, all parties. 
That's fascinating. That role in Brexit was one of the things that um, began to raise the position of Cabinet Secretary right up into the public spotlight, um, not his preference, I think. Do you think that that's now inevitable? His successor, Mark Sedwell, got, um, uh, more, again, probably more attention that he, than he wanted for the twists and turns of what he was doing. I think it is inevitable, but I think what it does, and in some ways I think it's quite positive, by the way, because I think uh, I think institutions, if they become black boxes and people don't understand them, that can be quite dangerous as well. But I think we do have to understand what the consequence of it is. I think when we, when we make these roles very public and we also uh, say that the people who are holding those roles can't defend themselves, you know, they have to remain kind of silent, uh, then I think we also have to be very careful about attacking them because, you know, the, it's very hard to kind of play that role and to be attacked if you can't come out in your, in your own defence. So fundamentally, I think kind of openness is a very good thing. Uh, but I think there is a, a kind of tricky issue to be addressed, which we haven't yet resolved, of, of how we balance that greater openness uh, with making those positions kind of fair for the people who have to you know, juggle what is a very difficult balance between having to remain silent but being a public figure and, and therefore being very easy to attack. Did he feel that that experience, particularly in the Brexit, uh, the Brexit years, if I can call them that, was a threat to the impartiality of the civil service? No, I don't think so. I mean, Jeremy was a huge believer uh, in the impartiality of the civil service, and he believed that you know the the, the, the fundamental culture of impartiality runs incredibly deep in the civil service. And there were a number of points in his career, which again I, I kind of talk about in the book, where he fought very, very hard to maintain that uh, impartiality. Um, so I don't think he felt that. I think he was worried about, you know, the, you know, the the fact that some civil servants were being kind of directly attacked. Uh, that he felt very deeply about, and I think he he felt that that was he well he knew that that was very difficult for people to live with. But I don't think he felt that it threatened the impartiality of the civil service. What about reform of the civil service? Um, he had a plan. He had lots of ideas on this. This was mainly what I talked to him about as, as director of the IFG. Um, and he had many, many ideas. Uh, there was always uh, keen to say he had three priorities at any one time. Dominic Cummings then came along a bit later, uh, also with many, many plans. Do you think they would have clashed? Oh, well, I'm sure they would have clashed, but I think they would also have found a way to work productively together. I mean, yeah, if you look back over Jeremy's career, there were multiple times when, you know, special advisors or others kind of came in and challenged the civil service. And, and by and large, Jeremy welcomed that. I mean, an earlier example who features quite heavily in the book is Steve Hilton, who, of course, was there uh, during the kind of coalition years. And Steve had some very radical ideas for how to reform the civil service. And in general, Jeremy welcomed that. Now, there were some uh, particularly kind of uh, extreme things that Steve wanted to kind of push through that Jeremy resisted. And I think they had some pretty kind of um, uh, pretty tough conversations around some of those. But there were a lot of ideas that Jeremy absolutely welcomed and embraced, you know, particularly some of the stuff around openness, for example, and, and greater transparency in government. So, you know, Jeremy at his heart, and this is, I think, is quite unusual uh, in a, in a cabinet secretary being like this, at his heart, he was a disruptor and an innovator. He was somebody who was focused on getting things done uh, and had kind of limited patience with, you know, heavy handed bureaucracy. 
Um, and, you know, that was that was a huge strength of his, I think, and, you know, something that meant that he was able to push through a lot of reform while he was in government. Yes, I wouldn't question that for, for a second. At the same time, he was very protective of the civil service in a way perhaps some of the people around Dominic Cummings um, were not in, in tone. I'm thinking of uh, several occasions on which he came uh, zinging back at the IFG to say, oh, I've, I've found, you know, page whatever of Whitehall Monitor or the seventh paragraph of your press release. I don't agree with this. Uh, he had an eye for detail, particularly when it, it was detail that appeared to be challenging the the, the civil service. He did indeed. And I think the civil service, you know, that's one of the reasons why he was very beloved of the civil service, because particularly in a world, as we've just kind of talked about, where the civil service was increasingly open to public criticism, uh, having somebody at the top who would defend the civil service um, and would accept, by the way, I mean, he was both their biggest critic and their biggest defender. You know, absolutely. He was at the forefront of wanting to get things to be better and change things. And he was constantly dissatisfied uh, with what they were doing, but he was also their biggest defender. Um, he, he encompassed both of those uh, together. One of the questions that's come up since you brought out this book was uh, that of Greensill, a company that's collapsed, and, and Lex Greensill, its, its head, who Jeremy helped to in- introduce into government. What's your understanding of all this? Well, I mean, it really fits very much into the, the kind of context we've been talking about. So we, you know, it takes us back to that coalition government uh, where there was a, a lot of support from ministers for bringing in more uh, private sector experience. By the way, that that had happened before as well. You know, you may well remember Gordon Brown and his government of all the talents. But, so it was an extension of that, but an acceleration of it. It led into, of course, kind of Francis Maud's extended ministerial offices, which were all about bringing in people on short-term contracts from the private sector to bring expertise in. Uh, so Jeremy saw Lex um, as, you know, one of those people who could be brought in, had experience of this thing called supply chain finance, and Jeremy wanted to find out whether or not that was going to be a useful thing in government. Um, there were others who were brought in at the same time. So people like John Fingleton came in uh, on a similar sort of basis. John is a, a fantastic economist. and Jeremy kind of brought him in also on a short term contract to bring more economics thinking into government. Um, and I think, you know, it's kind of interesting looking at the, the pharmacy work that they did, which, by the way, is still operating. I mean, the issue here, because people people do ask, kind of, why, why does government need supply chain financing? Surely government can just pay um, things up front. People do ask, why does government need supply chain fi- uh, uh, financing? You know, why, why doesn't government just pay uh, itself, you know, pay fast uh, itself? Uh, but if you take the, the example of community pharmacies, which was the, the one that uh, that was announced uh, early on in the, the kind of Cameron government, uh, these community pharmacies are independent. They're, they're kind of SMEs. And the way in which uh, they get paid is that once they've you know, done all of their prescriptions, they send them all back into government. The government has to kind of check them all. And then it kind of issues a refund, if you like, or a kind of payment to those pharmacies. It's pretty tricky if you're a community pharmacy because you're waiting around for that checking to happen before you can get your money and then you can pay your staff and everything else that you need to do. So the supply chain financing that they put in place basically meant that uh, you were predicted how much you were going to get in your next month's um, uh, receipts based on what happened in previous months. And you could get that as an advance uh, for a relatively small fee. I think it's kind of 
0.5% on top of, of kind of LIBOR, which is a very, very small percentage. Uh, and it was completely kind of, um, it wasn't obligatory. I mean, a, a small pharmacy could, could sign up for it. They could exit from it with no cost. Uh, and many, many of them do use it because in terms of your working capital, so you can pay your people, that is a very helpful thing to, to have. And actually, since it was introduced, it's now been kind of, well, as I understand it, it you know, it's, it's national, uh, it still exists, um, and that's quite helpful. And that's the sort of innovation that Jeremy was looking for, and that's why he wanted Lex to be there to look for look for opportunities to uh, put in place this, this new thinking uh, within government. Uh, but Lex was just one of many examples of that sort of trying to bring people in who would stimulate the system, who would look at a new way of doing things. I find that, I mean, a persuasive example about why government might want supply chain finance, and you've explained it beautifully. Thank you. Um, what do you, do you think, though, that the civil service and government have the sophistication to manage those things? I, I'm thinking of, um, of whether or not government understood uh, the precariousness of Greensill's financing and other examples of, of big companies that government has dealt with that suddenly, sometimes um, go under very very suddenly, one of the things we worked at at the, at the IFG is whether government looks um, enough into the finances of, of private companies it's dealing with. I mean, it's a good it's a good point. Um, I mean, it's worth looking at the timeline of this. So of course, when Lex came into government, he uh, you know he had only just uh, founded Green Cell Capital. It was an absolutely tiny organisation. I think it only had a kind of dozen or kind of twenty people in it, and it was doing very little work. It was doing no public sector work whatsoever. Uh, my understanding is that when Lex came in. You know, he signed up kind of conflict of interest, and and he was doing no public sector work. So, you you know, even the best commercial companies, and I work in the kind of private sector, you would look at that and say, well, you know, this is this is not a kind of company which is about to go bust. Actually, it's a tiny fintech startup. So, what happened with Greensill happened all a lot later. Um, so, you know, what what you can't do, of course, is is it's very very hard when you're bringing somebody in like that. Uh, to predict what what might well happen many years in the future, uh, and of course we, we kind of know the story of what happened to Greensill uh, far later. But I do think there's a kind of an interesting question because I think there's a there's a an interesting balance here between you know do you bring people in from the private sector and that's always going to create a degree of risk because you don't know what they're going to go on and do later. You don't know whether they're going to you know companies they founded are going to go bust or you know they suddenly. Uh, you suddenly discover that they've done something you really wish that they hadn't done. Um, so, but if you don't bring in those people and you don't bring that expertise in, how can you reform the civil service? How can you do what Jeremy did so well, which is kind of innovative, being innovative and disruptive? So I think we can take risk completely out of the system, but we're going to do it at a real cost. And what I hope comes out of this debate is a kind of rational and well thought through way of balancing that upside and balancing that risk uh, so that government doesn't lose the benefit of the private sector coming in. When the two of you were talking at home, did you speak to each other as, as one from the private sector, one from the public sector, each, each representing your, your, your fiefdom, if you like, or, or did you, you were very much talking in these terms um, in a world of, of people who felt uh, who ought to move back and forth across that boundary? 
Very much in the second, I think. So remember, of course, that I started my career uh, in the Treasury and then I moved into the private sector. Uh, Jeremy was always... I enjoyed your account of how you met Jeremy. His coyness about whether or not you were dating, as, as people, a word people, I guess, didn't use quite then. Exactly. Uh, and Jeremy was always, Jeremy always had a hugely wide network of people who he talked to in both the kind of public and private sectors. So, you know, what we would talk about was kind of interesting challenges that either he or I were facing, you know, usually policy challenges, because that's what fascinated both of us. And I'm, I'm afraid the book is a little bit of a kind of policy wonk book, because that's what we both loved and debated and, you know, spent a lot of time kind of talking about. Uh, and really, you know, I don't see that public private sector divide quite so clearly. I mean, people, you know, glibly say the private sector works better or the public sector is better at this. And I don't see it like that. I think there are particular challenges of operating in a public sector context uh, because there are, you know, multiple sources of, of kind of power and different hierarchies. But there are equally kind of huge challenges of working in the in the kind of commercial sector. And I do think, going back to what we were saying before, there are massive benefits if we can regulate it in the right sort of way of getting and mixing that expertise between the the two and we will be uh, you know the civil, the civil service will suffer uh, if we close the door to that uh, because you know something has gone wrong uh, with one particular case you know uh, you know it, many many years later after after they were in government I'm sure I'm not alone in finding the personal story that you've woven into all this very moving um, you've uh, as you said produced a marvelous um, historical document for policy wonks and and others but you've woven into it quite a bit of um, your relationship with uh, Jeremy and the family and so on. How did you balance these two jobs? There's some bit where you're, you're trying to work out um, which of you gets to be on in the office on time. It's interesting because if I look back and I look over the, the span of the time that we were together, I actually think over that time it was easier that we were both working than had one of us just been working. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't kind of there aren't days, and there certainly were many days where it was quite stressful because, and particularly during the financial crisis, actually, where Jeremy was hurtling out of the door at some kind of uh, terrible hour in the morning and not getting back until quite late. Um, but overall, the fact that we were both working, we we were both completely engaged in what we were doing. We loved kind of sharing what we were doing and debating it and talking about it. Um, I wasn't sitting at home kind of waiting for him to get home, kind of tapping my fingers on the table or anything like that. And he was hugely supportive of what I was doing. Uh, and as the kids got older, you know, they were starting to kind of engage in what we were all doing as well. I actually think for Jeremy and me, being the people that we are, it made our relationship and our marriage much stronger. Uh, though I don't deny it, it did create kind of tensions at times when we tried to kind of juggle everything. But I, I actually don't regret uh, at all us both doing that. I think it, uh, we both enjoyed it. And there were some um, divisions of labour uh, between you um, that um, took me by surprise, though they're not unique. Uh, for example, you drove and he didn't drive, apart from one picture you got of him in a car age about three or four or something. Um, and uh, you explained to him that a creature he saw through a field was not a giant rat, but a rabbit. There's a marvellous unworldliness about this. Was it, was that a, a big feature um, of, the, of the relationship? Yes. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, Jeremy was one of these extraordinary people who was immensely good at what he did. I mean, phenomenally good at what he did. 
Uh, and he combined being incredibly kind and, you know, very, very, very interested in people. And then, of course, incredibly good at policy and, and those different skills he brought together. And that's what made him so effective. Uh, but outside of that, he was the least practical person I have ever met. You know, he could barely change a light bulb, you know, couldn't drive a car, as we said. Um, you know, you wouldn't want him to hammer a nail into a piece of wood because it probably would go horribly wrong and somebody would end up in hospital. Um, you know, if, if a kind of one of our kids injured themselves, you know, Jeremy was the last person they would run towards because he would he would do his best to be helpful, but it would almost always uh, backfire. I remember my younger son once managing to put a pea up his nose and I wasn't there. And Jeremy decided that the solution was to add pepper uh, because then he would sneeze it out. And of course, that was that was an absolute disaster. I mean, it was <laughs> not, not what you should do. Um uh, but uh, he was always like that. He was a slightly un unworldly figure, and but he knew that as well. And so we had this kind of division of labour at home where he used to complain that I gave him the most menial tasks um, and then laugh and say, well, because, you know, if you gave me anything else, I'd probably be able to work out how to do it. So he did the kind of loading and unloading of the uh, washing machine and the dishwasher, general kind of washing up duties, uh, taking the bins out, and uh, nothing at all more complicated than that, really. Did he cook? I'm thinking of Ed Balls's triumph now as a television cook. No, I don't think Jeremy cooked anything for me in the entire time that we were together. For the record, thank you. <laughs> he, he was, and the book makes clear in a way that is um, very painful to anyone who, who saw him during his illness, um, just how ill he was, even though he wasn't letting it show on the surface. I'm, I'm horrified, I must say, to think of a, a dinner, um, an IFG dinner with our chairman um, in the January of, of, of 2018, when he was, as you describe in the book, very, very ill. And yet it, uh, it, was, it was a dinner that went on some hours, um, um, a small dinner, um, but um, it didn't seem to show it at all. He really wanted to keep going. He absolutely did. Um, he And at one point, and I say this in the book, I, I kind of turned to him and I said, this was after we had a, a particularly hideous uh, meeting with with the doctors, not, not because of them, but because of the news that they conveyed about how advanced his cancer was. And I kind of turned to him and said, you know, we can just stop everything now. We can kind of go and travel around the world in the time that we've got. We can take the kids with us. And he immediately said, no, 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 no. That's the last thing I want to do. Uh, and he said, you know, I need to keep on supporting the Prime Minister over Brexit. And, you know, Johnny's got his kind of GCEs, GCSEs, that's our kind of oldest child. Um, but, you know, realistically, I think there were two reasons why he was so determined to do that. I mean, first of all, was the reason that he gave. He was conscious that um, the Prime Minister was facing a, a huge challenge in trying to find a way through uh, the Brexit uh, the Brexit situation, which we discussed earlier. Uh, he knew he was good at what he did, and he wanted to support her as much as he possibly could. Uh, there was another reason, though, which was for Jeremy, coping with the fact that he had a terminal illness and he was really very ill and he was dealing with increasing amounts of pain and discomfort, um, he could cope with that with the distraction of doing the job, which he knew and he loved and he knew he was good at doing. And the longer he could keep doing that, the longer he could kind of put off thinking about it. And he and I knew that the moment at which he stopped, it would be very, very close to the end. And, and that was indeed the case. Um, he was always, by the way, transparent with the Prime Minister about kind of his situation. She she knew and she was incredibly supportive. And, you know, I think we owe her 
we owe Mrs May a lot. She was uh, she was incredibly supportive all the way through that period. Um, uh, and she, you know, she she knew, but she was very happy for him to keep working. And it really was the best thing for him. And you 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 feel that looking back. Yes, no, absolutely. I, it wouldn't, have, and, and the doctors were very clear with me as well. It wasn't going to make any difference, really, uh, whether he worked or whether he didn't work. It was a personal choice, you know. How do you want to spend? And this is hopefully a choice that you know is not going to be forced on on the rest of us, you know, or, or many of us. How do you spend the remaining months of your life? And Jeremy knew that was a choice, and he actively took the choice that he wanted to work. Advice from his doctors was it wasn't going to make, you know, really wasn't going to make very much difference at all. Um, and he took that choice kind of knowing it was, he knew that, you know, the choices, the choice he was making there. Uh, and I think it was the best one for him. And now, what are, what are you working on? Well, uh, so, you know, lots of things. So, I, you know, I'm continuing to do uh, the jobs which we kind of talked about at the start of this. I, I kind of love the things that I do. Um, I'm still a mum of three. Uh, you know, Jeremy would be very, very proud of, you know, all the stuff that they've, they've kind of gone on to do since. And that's one of the great kind of sadnesses as, as you know, your list, other listeners will kind of feel uh, if they've also kind of lost somebody like I have, is you kind of look at your kids and you think, well, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to tell Jeremy kind of what, what kind of Johnny's doing now, uh, or what Lizzie and Peter are doing. Um, and of course, you know, right now, you know, I wish he was here to kind of speak for himself, particularly with some of the, the kind of controversy at the moment. And, and that's a, a great uh, sadness that he's not here to be able to do that. Um, and then alongside all of that, I'm, I'm actually writing another book, uh, I had a very unusual childhood, which we haven't touched on growing up sailing around the world in a boat for a decade. And I'm determined to get that book out now because I think that's a kind of interesting story of, you know, the, the importance of education. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up not being able to go to school, basically, and, and not really being able to uh, have friendships or not normal friendships um, whilst living in the South Pacific on a boat. And I think, you know, that's a, a kind of interesting debate as you, well. You touch on this tantalisingly in the, in this book. What age, and in, until you finally left and uh, told your parents, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the boat? How well, I was there when I was seven. Um, and when I was 16, my parents left myself and my younger brother, who was 15, behind in New Zealand uh, for about nine months. That was a very, very tough period. Uh, they went off sailing and kind of left us there. Um, and then at the end of that year, I came back to England to try and negotiate my way into university. So it ended up being pretty much a decade with that kind of, you know, and, and it got increasingly tough. As I got kind of older, I really wanted to kind of get an education. I, I kind of felt, as you can imagine, a kind of teenage uh, girl, you know, felt uh, the kind of absence of friends very kind of acutely. And um, in that last period, I, I was kind of on my own with my brother. So, you know, it, it's quite a tough book, but, but hopefully a, a kind of interesting book. I really look forward to it. It wasn't just sailing. It was sailing, you know, across the Pacific where you're not going to pick up many friends or school papers. Well, it was sailing all the way around the world because we sailed from England down to South America, across to South Africa, across this southern Indian Ocean to Australia. We were shipwrecked halfway, halfway across that. Um, it's, it's, we were sailing the wrong way around the world. Uh, and then the kind of latter bit was in the South Pacific. Well, we look forward to that. Um, thanks. Thanks very much indeed for that. Um, tantalizing glimpse of it pro-education and possibly against sailing around the world age seven well certainly for a decade i wouldn't admit i would i think for a short period it's fabulous but i think it's an interesting question what decisions parents should you know should make on behalf of their children when their children can't make them for themselves 
Suzanne Hayward, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.